Hello, mystery fans. My name is Jess, and this is CamCat Unwrapped. You've been listening to The Disappearance of Trudy Solomon by Marcy McCreary, which was a finalist for the Silver Falchion Award. Today, we have Marcy here with us for a virtual interview, and I'm so excited to chat with her about her book. Marcy, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Well, Marcy, I'm so excited that you're here to talk with us. I really loved your book, The Disappearance of Trudy Solomon. Uh, Why don't you start by telling us a little bit about yourself? Uh, So I live in Hull, Massachusetts, which is a small coastal town just south of Boston. Um, I spend a lot of time in Nantucket, which is where I am right now, uh, with my husband, Lou McCreary, who's also an author, uh, and my black lab, Chloe. I have two daughters, and I have two stepdaughters. So my daughters are in Brooklyn, New York, and Nashville, Tennessee. And my husband's daughters, my stepdaughters, are in Madison, Wisconsin, and Seattle, Washington. So we do a lot of travel, not during the pandemic. Now we do try to get together a lot. Um, I grew up in Brooklyn, New York. I went to school in Washington, D.C. And I moved to Boston right after college, um, followed a boyfriend up here, and stayed. Um, My career was mostly in marketing, marketing communications, sales and development, at publishing companies, at magazine publishing companies and content marketing companies. Um, And I've always wanted to write a novel. I should really say I love to read mystery. And I would close a book and think to myself, hmm, can I do that? Um, And so, you know, there just came a time, I think I was between jobs. And I was like, you know, here's a bucket list item. Let me just see if I can pull it off. You know, can I write 80,000 cohesive words that make a story? And I did. And it's, it's not the disappearance of Judy Solomon. I, I kind of call it sort of like my baby, my test novel. Sure. Um, called the deeper you dig. And it's a little bit of a mystery, but it's a coming of age. Um, and I decided to self publish it. I wasn't really in the mood to sort of query it or whatever. I just want to kind of get it out there, you know, kind of just test the waters with it. But when I decided that I really seriously wanted to write, I mean, I, I thought to myself, okay, I did that. And I really, I I was looking for inspiration and I found inspiration and we'll talk about that. And I was like, I, th- I really think I can write this novel and sell it um, and get a publishing deal. So, so that's what I did. So I, um, I left the nine to five and um, just started writing full time and, and uh Luckily, uh, found CamCat, and the rest is history. Oh, that's amazing. Wow. Well, that's so cool that you even were in kind of the publishing space before. That's so neat. And I can kind of hear a little bit of the that East Coast kind of Brooklyn-y, Boston-y <laughs> accent. That's so fun. My mom's best friend is it also from the East Coast. It doesn't matter how long you've been out of Brooklyn. You cannot lose the accent because first of all, my <laughs> sisters are still there. My parents are still there, right? So if I talk to them on the phone, I am going to revert to a Brooklyn accent. I can get it really heavy. Um, <laughs> but, but in Boston, people will even say, oh, you must be from New York. You must be from Brooklyn. You must be from Long Island. I hear that a lot. I'm from Long Island. I'm like, no, I'm not from Long Island. I'm from Brooklyn. That's so funny. I guess, yeah, I never thought about it, but there are distinct little differences between all of the accents. I'm sure when you're from that area, you can pretty clearly pick it out. <laughs> yes. 
That's so funny. Well, we were talking a little bit about, or you had mentioned a little bit about how you're just really inspired by the mystery genre and how that was always the genre you would lean towards when you were reading. Um, and I assume that that is why you wanted to write a mystery yourself is the, the deep you dig. Is that what you said your other novel is called? Is that also a mystery? It's a little bit of a mystery. It's certainly like a secrets and lies type book, but it's a coming of age. Um, uh, there are three. There are three main characters, and they switch they, in different timelines. So it's a, it's complex, just like the disappearance of Trudy Solomon is complex. You have three generations of women that are connected. They just don't know how mm-hmm. until the the three storylines come together, and that was a lot of fun to do. And I think I've always liked complicated mysteries, complicated sure. plots. I. You know, even Nancy Drew, like, so let's say my introduction to mystery was Nancy Drew. They they were not that simplistic, if you really think about it. They were very, um, they were very interesting, um, intricate mysteries. Of course, they were written for, you know, young adults. Um, so so they couldn't be, they couldn't be Agatha Christie level complication. But, you know, from there, I went to Agatha Christie. From there, I went to like Dick Francis. From there, I went to P.D. James. From there, I went to sure. Kate Atkinson and... Tana French and and Susie Steiner and and I began to see sort of like the mystery that I like is very is is sort of steeped in the investigator police procedural right so I, I find them very logical and I'd love to try to figure it out as I go along so I kind of felt I was really familiar with the tropes you know sort of doing how to do red herrings and misdirection and how to you know make all of your suspects seem like suspects and and sure. how to and how to to sort of discern who's lying and who's telling the truth. And so I really always loved those those themes. And so, um, and that's why I was drawn to this genre. I don't think I can write literary fiction. I don't think I can write a (laughs) rom-com. I certainly couldn't write a romance. Um, I have like this tiny little sex scene in my book and that was really hard to write. I kind of like it was like a PG version, like you know, you, they they start and then you get the after. And sure. You miss the whole thing. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, because my parents have to read the book, right? Sure. Um, so yeah, so there's so there are some genres that I I don't read, so I don't know how I would write, you know, write to them. So I just felt really comfortable in the mystery genre. Sure, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, are you a big like mystery TV show, crime or true crime person yes, as well? Yes, I I love I I really love the um, the international mystery uh, police procedurals on Netflix or BritBox. Um, a- absolutely, I mean, I I really do. I'm really drawn to again the so the police procedural uh, type shows. That is so much fun. I love those kinds of police procedural. I'm a big like Criminal Minds fan or just like those shows in general where, you know, it's all about the mystery, but you're really seeing it from the perspective of the people trying yeah. to solve when, it. When I was young, um, on Sunday nights, my father and my father would make us. No, my father would, would ask that we <laughs> join him to watch the shows that were on this, what we call the Sunday night lineup, the mystery Sunday lineup. And it would be Columbo and Banachek and Kojak and Macmillan and uh, Macmillan and wife. And it was a whole, and it was, you know, every other, every Sunday was a different one of these mysteries. And so that also, I think, informed, you know, the different types of mystery for Columbo. 
you knew who did it from the get-go and sure. the the idea behind it was like so how does Columbo figure it out how does he get his guy so it's really the sort of the you know how he solves it and the why done it you know where you would have on the on the other end you know you'd have Barnaby Jones or you'd have Kojak or my favorite was Banachak where this it, it was actually a detective series and they would have to figure out you know the crime sure so then for your story for the disappearance of Trudy Solomon did you uh, know from the get go, this is who I want to, I, I mean, be the perpetrator. It seemed like there was just so many things going on, but uh, there there was definitely more than one big, bad, bad guy. Uh, so did you know that from the beginning that that was how you wanted to, uh, to address so, the story and who you wanted those big, or, you know, those villains to be? Right. So, I mean, I'm a, I'm a pantser. I mean, I do not, outline at all I just pretty much <laughs> write and see to my pants I let the characters lead me along but when I start out I do know who the killer is who the you know who the perps are sure um it's just to me police procedurals are super logical so it's if if Susan and Will so the two detectives in the novel uncover something, something is revealed to them, you know, they turn over a stone, that's going to lead them to the next thing. So it's really just a matter of letting, letting the story sort of naturally sort of evolve from, you know, where I start knowing where I end. Sure. Now, I will say with the disappearance of Judy Solomon, we actually, like I worked with Helga in the developmental edit stage, and we changed the villain. So those both Stanley, oh. although both villains um, are, are villains at the end, it sort of switched what they did. Okay. So it's just just like as an aside, like no one's going to know that reading it, but sure. it actually actually kind of changed up the ending quite a bit from what I had originally intended. And 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 I remember Helga goes, "Can you make this work?" I was like, "Yeah, I can make it work. It's such a great idea." So it, you know, so I just went back to the drawing board, but it, I didn't have to go back to the beginning of the book or change anything because at the end, my villains were my villains. And I, I just knew sort of the little things that needed to be done to kind of work them that way. Right. Um, in the new novel, the new Susan and Wilford, I knew who the villain was from the get go. And that person um, is, you know, the villain all the way to the end. I mean, I knew exactly um, you know, how that was going to pan out in my head. Again, no outlining, you know, I'm just sort of writing and getting to that point. Amazing. I love that you use the term pantser. We've been hearing that quite a bit with our authors. It's so fun to think that you guys just are letting the story tell you how it goes. I love that so much. Uh, so I wasn't sure that the murder of Madison Garcia was a sequel. Is it a sequel? It's a standalone series, so you you don't have to read The Disappearance of Trudy Solomon because it doesn't pick up where it left off. Sure. Except for some of the character-driven plot lines. So to understand sort of where Will and Vera are coming from and the relationship between Will and Vera, who are Susan's parents, and Susan, right. and even her boyfriend, Ray, you know, it would be nice to to read the, the first book in this series, but it's a totally separate you know, standalone mystery, uh, murder mystery. So it, it's not, it's not, you don't have to, um, but it would be nice. Um, and the third book in this series, which I'm writing now, is um, the same idea. It's a standalone series. So you can read the third book without reading the first two. Sure. Yeah. Well, that's 
so neat. I love that. I love the idea of, you know, you get little breadcrumbs from the story from before, but you don't necessarily need that in order to really appreciate and understand, you know, the murder of Madison Garcia or whatever your third book may be. I was going to ask you later on down the line, but I can just ask you now, are there any fun teasers that you can tell us about both the sequel and then the third? Um, So it's called, uh, the working title is uh, Summer of Love... The summer, um, okay, it's the name of the title is Summer That's what of editing Love. Is for. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, it's two, it's, uh, it's a dual timeline. So it's 1969 and 2019, hence Summer of Love and Death. Um, and in 1969, Detective Ford, it's his, it's Will Ford, it's his very first case. Oh, wow. Um, and so it's flashbacks to his case to help move along Susan's case, which is. Vi- appears to be very similar or connected to his very first case as a detective. So it goes back and forth between Susan and Will's point of view. So it's the first time Will gets his own POV in in the series. Right. That's so neat. I love how things that Will was working on before always inform what Susan is working on in the present. That's so neat. And it's exactly the same idea, only now he's really in his own story. Now, the, 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 the books take place in an area of New York called Monticello, New York, which is, and and my characters live in Bethel, New York, which is where Woodstock, the festival took place. So in the summer of love and death, I get to bring in all the elements of 1969, which I love, which is, you know, Woodstock and the New York Mets winning the World Series, Walk on the Moon, um, the Harlem uh, music festivals that were in New York that summer. I think just like Vietnam and sort of, the whole upheaval of that time with the backdrop of the fact that the Catskill hotels were still, you know, we're, we're in their heyday. You're talking about those sort of dirty dancing days. Right. And then you have that, you know, compared to 2019, you know, the area has gone through a lot of ups and downs, mostly downs um, after the demise of the hotels, but it, it's sort of on an upswing now. So it's really interesting. The setting itself is like a character. It's got its own story of, you know, of, of you know, running, you know, running into hard times and sort of overcoming obstacles to be become something new and different. So I, this goes back to sort of like, why I set the stories in the Catskills because I spent my summers there. My father was the activities director at the Hotel Brickman. And and from the time I was a little girl up until, you know, when I left, when I went off to college, the area changed in such a dramatic way. And you can even say a traumatic way Mm. um, that I really felt it would be a great setting for a story, um, you know, because you've got the great hotels and the story behind what's called the Borscht Belt, the Jewish hotels, and its demise. And sort of where is it today? And, you know, what, who lives there? And, you know, is there, are the hotels um, on the, in the, in the back, uh, you know, um, in the back of the mind of the people who live there and what, what the place was like. So um, I chose to, I went, I always wanted to write a story that took place there. I just couldn't figure out what story. I was like, should I do a memoir? Like, okay, but if I do a, a murder mystery, is it, is it one of those like locked door, you know, locked, not locked door, what is it called? Like locked room, mm. um, you know, because it's in the hotel, but you know, people weren't really like trapped in the hotel. So it wouldn't really work. Um, but I, but, but then this, this story happened. So this, this article that I read, 
in the paper about this woman, this Catskill resort waitress. Her name was Flora Stevens. And she disappeared in the mid 70s from the area. No one knew what happened to her. And um, fast forward to like, I think it was like the 2015 or 2016, um, skeletal remains were found on the side of the road. So everyone assumed it was Flora Stevens, like, you know, the, the dates matched up. But a detective thought to himself, well, you know, we have new technology. Let me put her social security number in the system. And he got a ping. He got um, a ping from a Alzheimer's facility in Lowell, Massachusetts. So they were obviously using her social security number for probably Medicaid or Medicare. Sure. And so they're like, okay, maybe this is that w- missing woman. So they drive out there and they show her her, her ID. And she, she you know, confirms that she is Flora Stevens. She was even able to say who her husband was. So I read the article because it was in the Boston Globe because this, the second half of the story took place in Lowell, right? And then it was also in the Monticello Record. And I read the story and I was like, okay, so what happened to her in all these years? Like, where did she go? What did she do? And, um, you know, there was no follow-up story. Um, right. It's like, it just drove me crazy. I was like, what happened <laughs> to her in those, in those 40 years? Right. And I thought, well, you know, it would be fun is fill in the 40 years, you know, fill it in with a story of murder and mayhem and mischief. And, um, and it would be a great way to tie the 1970s, which was pretty much the heyday of the hotels. Like I would say it's right. right it was right when things were starting to, right when things were starting to plunge. Maybe the peak. Um, and then marry that with the, you know, what was going on in the area, you know, now in 20, it was, that book takes, that disappearance of Trudy Solomon takes place in 2018. Right. Um, what's happening now? So that was the inspiration for the novel. I knew I wanted to write something in that area. And then I read this newspaper article and it just just got stuck in my head. Like, oh my God, this right. would make such a great story. And the idea with the daughter and the father pairing, I think, came from the fact that my father was the Tumla at, at the Hotel Brickman and also at Cutcher's Country Club up there. So the father-daughter thing kind of also felt kind of like a fun, I don't want to say trope, but, you know, because you've got Veronica Mars and Barnaby Jones, and you, there are instances of father-daughter detective teams, but not a lot. Sure. Not a right. lot. I mean, I went kind of searching, doing some research to see, you know, is this a thing? And not really. I mean, in later, you know, Bosch introduces his daughter, you know, you know, in the, in the later series, um, of the Bosch series, but for the most part, I thought it was a pretty original concept to sure. run with. Yeah. Well, that's so crazy. All of the things that you just said, I love that you not only drew from the actual history of the place that you grew up, but also your own personal experience. That was something I was going to ask you about, you know, between the research that you had to do and also just drawing from your own life. What other things did you use from those two pools of information? And then how did you decide what you were going to use and what you weren't? So it's interesting on the research front, I, I don't really have to do any research on the area because I lived it. I mean, I, I lived the, you know, the dirty dancing, you know, into the marvelous Mrs. Maisel, you know, 
uh, years <laughs> and then and then beyond. So I mean, so like that, and I know, and I was still very connected to like the the owners of the owner of the the hotel Brickman. So if I had any questions, you know, I can I can ask her from the owner's point of view. And just to say, like the owners of the the fictional Cutman Hotel are nothing. They're not like anybody I know. <laughs> I mean, certainly they, you could say that you know there are people like that. <laughs> But but it's not anybody I personally know. Most of the owners I knew were, you know, wonderful people, salt of the earth. Um, there might have been other people at the hotel that mm, not sure. so much. But <laughs> the owners were always the owners of all the hotels that I had anything to do with um, were wonderful people, including the Pines. I knew the owners of the Raleigh. I knew the owners of the Brickman, the Cutchers. Um, so it's it. I was able to draw from that. Really where I was doing research was on the police procedural side of things, um, you know, just making sure that um, interrogation sounded real, that the way that you arrest somebody is real, the way that you go about an investigation and some, you know, that to me, that's where I needed the research, um, not not the actual setting or the, you know, the the characters or who would live in these areas or, you know, what's happening. And that's true in Madison Garcia, where, again, I, I, my research was around autopsies and crime scenes and, you know, blood spatter and how to use a knife to kill somebody. I mean, so that was, <laughs> that was my research. Wow. Oh my gosh. Well, that is, it's again, fun. so neat. Yeah, I mean, it's so neat that you were able to to take so much from what you already knew. And I feel like, yeah, it makes sense that a lot of the procedural stuff or the more scientific -y, nuanced things you might have had to do a little bit more research into. But that's so fun uh, that I just I love like I said, I'm also a big fan of the, the true crime shows or just the general crime and mystery shows. So I always wonder what people do to kind of get their stories rolling and okay, what kind of research do we have to do here? How do we need to kill this person off in order to push the story along? Cause it has to be believable too. And it's definitely everything that happens in your story, even though it is loosely based off of this woman, you know, maybe right. the, the bones of this story, but then everything that you filled in the blanks right. with is, is it's something that is a very cool, but be believable. Right. I mean, I think also go, goes back to what I other authors that I read that do a very good job with the police procedural uh, Val McDermott. I mean, and so, a lot of these are, are not U.S. based, but the, the the I think there are a lot of similarities between, um, you, you know, what goes on in the U.K., Scotland, you know, wherever those books take, take place and the U.S. and whatever I need to suss out and figure out, you know, what's what takes place in the U.S. I'll just call someone who I know who's either in law enforcement or a lawyer or a financial advisor in order to just sort of get some of the details right. I mean, I'm still writing fiction. I can make stuff up if I want to. Sure. <laughs> but in the, like, I, want, I want most of it to be based in fact. I don't want it to feel like CSI, like you get the DNA results in one day. Like that just doesn't happen. Right. But actually, when you're writing a story that's, you know, almost 400 pages long, you don't want things to happen fast. I mean, you need things to sort of slow down and, um, you know, take their time and sort of be revealed in a way that's realistic. Um, Cause I'm not, it's not a 30 minute, 60 minute, you know, program. It's actually telling a story. So I, I kind of like the fact that, you know, I don't, I don't have to rush um, the, 
the, the crime scene stuff, I, you know, I can let it, I can at least make it more realistic. Um, and I, and I like that stuff, you know, I like, I like it. I, you know, just like a, a Bosch. My favorite author is, um, is a woman. Unfortunately, she just, she just died of a brain, of brain cancer. Mm. Her name is Susie Steiner. She's a British author who wrote a, a, a three, uh, three standalone series books, um, where the main character was a detective, uh, a detective named um, Man and Bradshaw. They are brilliant, brilliant books. Man and Bradshaw, Bradshaw is a very flawed female detective, mm. um, and uh, and the and the novels are a little bit on the dark side, but really brilliantly written. And when I read those, I mean, I have to say those were very inspirational to me in terms of like writing, like a style of writing that I hope to emulate. Um, and it's just sad that, you know, she, she, um, she died, you know, young, mm. probably around my age. Oh, wow. Yeah, that is young. That is sad. Um, I mean, you've just listed so many of the, of the different types of media that you've consumed as far as all of the mystery things that inspired you to become a writer. But what exactly was that transition like for you from consumer to author? Yeah, I think I touched on this in the beginning. Like, I just, I felt like whenever I read a novel in the mystery genre that I kind of felt, I always felt this, like, I can do this. I think I can do this, um, you know, sensibility. I, you know, and my husband's a, a, um, an author and he would, you know, he provided a lot of guidance and sort of what, not only what makes a good story, but, you know, how to bring the characters to life. Um, he writes literary fiction, so his novels are character driven, and 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 that it's very. I think the best advice he ever gave me as a writer is that all of the the secondary and tertiary ca uh, characters they need to be drawn in such a way so that the reader can picture that character as a protagonist in their own story. Mm. So that even the smallest role, like Eleanor Campbell, the woman with the birds, like you can picture her in her in her own story, even though she's just on a few pages in my book, sure. in this story. And so when I write a secondary or tertiary character, I do keep that in the back of my mind. They're not stick figures. They are, they are people that Susan is, um, especially in a cold case where she needs to talk to a lot of people to, to build a case. You know, you're going back to witnesses who are just, telling you one thing and then they're out of the picture. Mm -hmm. So they really have to be memorable. Um, they might not come back into the story, but what they've told Susan is sort of the snowball, you know, taking off. So, you know, so they might be little characters that cameo appearances, but right. I think when I read other novels, um, I, I look at that. I look for that. I look for that, you know, sort of like eat, they're treating their, their, you know, lesser characters with a lot of, um, you know, flavor, you know, with a lot of, of depth. And so that's something that's important to me as a writer when I write. Sure. Yeah. I mean, that all is very cool and makes a lot of sense and definitely was something that came through when I was listening to the audiobook of your book. Um, but I guess what I was thinking was more just, you know, a lot of people will see, you know, consume the media, consume whether it's the TV show or the movie or read the book uh, of this murder mystery that maybe inspires them. But I don't think everyone would necessarily make the jump from 
<laughs> consumer to I'm going to now write about this, even if they thought maybe that they could do their own twist on things. So it sounds like your husband was really helpful in, in informing that for you and in making that transition for you. I think he was. I think, you know, like I said, I wrote the DPU dig to sort of test myself to see if I was even capable of doing such a thing because um, there's a lot of discipline involved in it. So I try to like, I write, I write six days a week, 500 to a thousand words a day, but my goal oh my is gosh. 500. I like if I've written 500 and I can't, and I'm, and I feel like I've written 500 good words. I'm like, you know what? I'm, I'm done because it, it, it begins to add up. And then when I come back to the manuscript, I read those last 500 to a thousand words that I wrote the day before and I move on and I do get stuck. And when I get stuck, I have to walk away for about a week. But what I do in that time frame is I'm noodling ideas. You know, where is this going? Why am I stuck? I mean, obviously if I'm stuck, I think it's because there's something that I've done wrong earlier in the manuscript. It's, usually that's not the case. It's just that I'm just trying to sort out a sticky plot point. Um, so I step away and then I go back to the beginning and I read it through. Um, and a lot of my ideas come to me <laughs> in my sleep. Like as I'm falling to asleep, that's how I make myself fall asleep. I'm thinking <laughs> through what the next scene is going to be. And, ah. and that in four, I swear to God, I know it sounds crazy. <laughs> Not at all. Say that they come up with scenes in the, in the shower, but actually as I'm falling asleep, I'm thinking about tomorrow's scene. What is it going to be? What? How does it take off from here? And then when I wake up, I do remember it. Um, oh, and, and, I, and I write that scene. And that has served me well um, yeah. until it doesn't, until the day where <laughs> I'm like, wait, I can't remember the scene. Um, sure. But I, I try to write like scene by scene. Okay, yeah. In order. <laughs> oh, you go in order. Oh, that's so interesting. <laughs> a lot of writers don't go in order that they might come up with something and they write it. And then they, that's what, I, I can't do that. I, so if I, if, I, if I get stuck, and it's usually around the three-quarter point of the book where I have to start wrapping things up and, I, you know, and, and things have to start making sense and, sure. you know, and, and I don't want to go too fast, you know. So that's where that's where sort of I get stuck. And I think to myself, oh, I should outline, right? So I go, <laughs> I go to start to outline. I'm like, oh, I can't outline. This is stupid. And then I go back to just, just writing. Well, if there's anything I've learned through interviewing all of our authors, it's that everyone's process is so different that if an outline doesn't work for you, Clearly, it, it you don't need one if you were able to write such fun books that really seem like they have a nice resounding resolution. Um, so. I, you know, I think it's television informs me best of the cadence mm -hmm. of a story. Okay, um, that's cool. You know, I really think like more so than reading, a really, really good television program gives me a better sense of, because Netflix is the best example of that, especially as they serial, serialized dramas, mm -hmm. the cliffhanger at the end, you're like, oh my God, I have to, I have to, I have to watch the next one. And then before you know it, you're binge watching. So I really kind of feel like, even though I understand where the writer needs to sort of like leave you hanging so that you, you know, you continue on your, you know, this propulsion in that, it's, I think it's really good television series um, that definitely have informed um, sort of the cadence of, of my stories. 
Yeah, I can I can see that. I can see your inspiration there. And I love what you said about how a lot of your ideas came to you as you were falling asleep. I feel like there have definitely been studies about that, about how uh, you just our ideas, some of our best ideas or, or the answer to some random question or even our thoughts running wild in a, in a very specific way that gives us some peace for ourselves always happens right as we're falling asleep. So that makes a lot of sense. It's It's, it's funny to kind of think about it's almost like you need to relax in order to draw those conclusions because you're too stressed right, about because, it. Otherwise, right? Because because when I'm done writing for the day, I don't think I don't want to think about the next scene. I'm like my brain is fried. Right. I go through the rest <laughs> of my day, which is like generally like being on social media and doing marketing and thinking sure. about it. like it's it's too. I mean, it's associated with the book, but in a different way. Mm-hmm. So the only time I really get to you know, get, you know, power down my brain. It's like when I'm going to sleep and I think to my, and it actually helps me fall asleep. Like, you know, like thinking through the next scene. So it's a method that works for me. I'm not, yeah. I'm not saying it works for anybody else, but sure. Um, it's, yeah. Yeah. Well, as I said too, I feel like everyone's writing process has been so different as I've been interviewing our authors. It's so fun to hear how different things work for different people. And that's been really, really great. And I love hearing even this version. I feel like you're not completely alone in feeling this way, that it's just nice to feel like, okay, I'm, I'm burned out. I don't want to think about this right now. So giving yourself some time and space to decide and, and for the story to kind of tell you what it wants to do, uh, which I think that's exactly what happens. Yeah. 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 Which I just think is such a, a cool way to look at it as you called yourself a pantser, which I, again, I think I said this earlier, it's a, it's a term that always just brings me so much joy because (laughs) I I know exactly what you mean flying by the seat of your pants in, in order to fill in the gaps in the story. And that's so fun. Uh, I'm going to shift gears just a little bit because I'm curious. I told you that I listened to the audiobook of this book, which is how I I, I read it, was uh, by listening to the audiobook. So uh, when you were listening to the audiobook, was that interesting for you to like hear your whole story, hear your words read back to you? What was that like for you? I thought Rachel Fulcinetti did a fabulous job. And I remember we auditioned several narrators, and the minute I heard her voice... I was like, that's Susan Ford, right? So I was like, that that's how I envisioned her sounding. But then, you know, when she has to sort of take on the other voices, she just like, I'm like, oh my God, this is so, so cool. I, I actually just thought it was really cool like to listen, listen to my whole book. And I didn't, and it's funny because I jumped around listening to different portions. I think by the time, because <laughs> when I got the audiobook, I was, I think I was a little burnt out on the disappearance of Judy Sullivan at that point. I think I had read it That's like, fair. you know, 50 <laughs> times. And then the, then the audio came out. I was like, oh my God, can I, can I even like go through it one more time? Um, but um, I'm, I was, I, I find it really fascinating. I just never imagined like hearing my words. You know, I, I think sure. that's sort of the, the um, the, the part of it that I like the best. Um, and I'm really, I cannot wait to hear, um, the murder of Madison Garcia, because I think, I think the one's even more fun. I don't, I don't know why. I mean, maybe because it's, because I'm, maybe I'm uh, getting better, you know, at writing whatever, you know, as I do each book. Um, I just find like the, the murder of Madison Garcia, I think the narrator is going to have a really fun time with. A lot of the characters come back. So, she's familiar with them. So she just has to get into character pretty quickly. So 
and then there's some obviously there's a whole new set of um villains in the story and sure so, yeah oh my gosh that's so cool I always imagine I mean I, I'm not an author uh, but I love talking to our authors about their experience and listening to their audiobooks for the first time. And I feel like I, I just can imagine so clearly you thinking, OK, you know, was this the right move? Is this a good story? Maybe at least to some degree where you've looked at it so many times, you know, when you say a word over and over again and you're like, is that English still? I don't even know anymore. So I probably, you know even is extended to writing where you've re rewritten and written a sentence so many times that you're like, this is a good sentence, right? And then getting to hear it back and getting that confirmation must just be the best feeling. I should, you know, it's funny because I listened to the audios, you know, in the process of having, I didn't give myself enough room between like not knowing the story of truth, not reading it, reading it, reading it, reading it. And then I read the, and then I heard the audio. What I should have done, I think I'm going to do this Madison Garcia, is leave some time, you know, get get unfamiliar with the story mm. and then listen to it. So I was, I, I mean, I don't know if, I, I mean, to say that I was, I'm, I was sick of the story. I don't want to <laughs> say that, but I was, I was moving on and, and I was like, and, and all of a sudden they were like, okay, the audio book. And I'm like, I, ha I mean, you have to listen, right? And I was like, I should have I should have let some room in between, you know, all the work that I had put into Trudy Solomon. I should have put a breather in there and then listened to the audio. So you, you actually you just inspired me to actually listen again. Oh, I was going to ask you. Uh -huh. Yeah. And to sort of listen to it because I'm not as familiar with every stinking sentence and word in the book <laughs> the way that I was when I listened to the audio. So, sure. yeah, so I think you know, it's. I, I do want to go back and listen to it with without it being so entrenched in my head. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I can totally see how you might have, I mean, it sounds like you were just kind of over it and ready to move I was on. <laughs> I was, I was, but I loved, I loved Rachel's narration. Love, love, love. So, yeah. you know, so that was, that was great. I just loved hearing her voice and. Oh, I'm so curious uh, as to how that'll go for you when, you do listen to it again after now some time has passed. So I'm I'm excited for you almost getting to experience it the way I'm that curious. I got I to. I would, I would think that I would even enjoy it more because I just remember sure. feeling more like a chore because I had it, you know, because I was I was doing it because it was the next thing I needed to do and listen to. Whereas now if I do it, I feel like it's going to be just for pleasure again. And I don't have to like think about every sentence and every word and is this, you know, you know, am I, you know, I'm just, I'm just sitting back and enjoying it. So um, but this is good advice for Madison Garcia. I'm going to give myself a breather before I listen to it. Well, good advice that you're giving yourself, really. <laughs> I'm just sitting here asking questions. <laughs> but yeah, no, I, I can totally see how you can get a little burnt out on your own work just because it's your, you know, your baby and you're putting all of your time and energy and effort into it. And that must be as rewarding and amazing as that is must also just be a lot to have to deal with and process all the time. I can just imagine some other authors like seeing this and going, what? She's sick of her novel? Like, what? No, I'm not really sick of it. It's just like, I'm sure all of them go through this period where, um, you know, you're on, you're writing the next novel. So, and then, and then, but there's stuff that you still have to do with your first novel. So it's, um, it begins to overlap and it was like, ah. <laughs> Well, you have these characters that are coming back in the next book. And I'm wondering, do you have any like vision for what they would look like in your head as you're thinking of these characters or 
really, I guess what I'm trying to ask, which is a question that I've been asking everyone, but um, it, it feels like I'm approaching it from a different perspective just because I feel like I'm kind of understanding your process more. Um, do you have actors that you kind of cast in your head or that you would cast in your movie uh, that play your characters? So I just, it's funny because I just went through this exercise of casting Trudy Solomon because I was thinking of doing a social media post regarding because I see it, I see it a lot in social media, how authors cast their books. I'm like, okay, let me go through this. It would be fun. I actually thought this was fun. This was a fun exercise. Oh, good. And that's my <laughs> kind of thing. thinking about it. Cause, well, because it's, because it's also going to work for, for the next book. Right. So, um, so I wrote them down. So I'm looking at them here. So I, I have uh, Juliana uh, Margulies as Susan Ford. So she was, if you remember, she was the curly hair doctor on ER. Uh-huh. And it just her look was Susan, the eyes, the hair, sort of the, the that at her affect. So that definitely reminded me of Susan Ford. Her dad is Sam Elliott. Like that's an easy one. Uh. <laughs> the older guy, full head of hair, <laughs> you know, like just this kind of, you know, gruff kind yeah, of guys. Rough for sure. <laughs> Vera I have as Linda Carter. Okay. My love. She's a Wonder Woman, right? Yeah. She's the right age. Uh, but she's still see, see because Vera was a um a beauty queen in her youth. And she's right. lost all that. So Linda Carter, you know, couldn't can't be as beautiful, you know, but but she could you could definitely see where she where they're similar in body and type and look. Sure. Uh, Ray is Mark Ruffalo because yes. he's just like a hottie, right? He's the right age. He's a hottie. Like, so that's just really perfect. <laughs> Trudy, Emma Thompson, because uh-huh. even though Emma Thompson is younger than Trudy, Emma Thompson is such a great character actress. I absolutely see her as Trudy playing, you know, a, you know, a woman with Alzheimer's and really pulling it off and, um, you know, and making that and making her very real, you know, as someone who's this, she, Trudy Solomon is almost the, you know, she's the MacGuffin, you know, she's not really part of the story. <laughs> sure, she's yeah. just chasing her, you know, just trying to figure out what's ha- what happened to her. So um, her husband, Christopher Walken, yeah, remember he was Ben, right? He, he's Ben. He's got the, he looks like a troll. He's got his hair standing up. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Um, Lenny is Tim Curry. So Lenny is the old uh, coffee shop owner who's like, who's had a really rough, you know, kind of drug addled life, um, you know, kind of rough around the edges type of guy. So I pictured him as uh, Tim Curry, who I love. Um, let's see. Oh, the, okay. The, the, the villains in the story. Yes. I've got Rachel as Jane Seymour, Stanley as Ed, o, Ed O'Neill. Okay, yeah. You know, oh, his, love Ed yeah. O'Neill. Ed O'Neill, right? <laughs> That's so perfect. <laughs> yeah, he's a perfect family. Um, Meryl, the very beautiful Meryl. That's Brooke Shields. Um, Lori, Winona Ryder. Scott, Jason Statham. Uh, Josh, Jason Bateman. Wow. Eldred, Bill, Bill Pullman. See, I got this all worked out. And uh, j- everything um, you're saying, too, just is clicking in my brain. Like, yep, yes. That's and, it. Eleanor is, and Eleanor Campbell, the woman with the birds, is Judy Dench. Oh, okay. You know what? You have, have some Judy Dench in your. If you're <laughs> if you're someone who loves British drama, you have to have Judy Dench in your movie. You're not wrong. <laughs> but it's funny <laughs> that you uh, mentioned Emma Thompson specifically just because 
we talked to someone recently and asked them what their casting for the movie for their movie version of their book would be and they also mentioned emma thompson and she wasn't someone I was super familiar with, so I had to look her up. And now that you say that, 100%, I see it. <laughs> now I know who she is. <laughs> and I'm I'm so behind on, on typical, like, I, I know Gabe was making fun of me earlier. I just am so bad at, like, the um, modern media, like, keeping up with whatever celebrity gossip. I And I never know any of that. Stuff, but yeah, I, I'm 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 gonna I'm gonna cast Madison Garcia because of all the great characters in that book. Yeah. You've got you've got Camila Garcia and you've got Raphael Garcia. You've Madison. You have the same players on the Susan. You know you've got Susan and, right. and Will and Ray and Vera and Ella. Even even the Bird Lady comes back. In, oh my gosh! You know, <laughs> and um and then a whole host of you know new characters you've got you know Luis and Isabella Garcia so mm. um well I'm looking forward yes. then I, to I, I, hearing some, from you what you good, end up casting yes. some good Latino and Latina actresses to add to the mix yeah yeah I really look forward then to hearing all of your new casting choices when you end up doing that and when we end up talking about the murder of Madison Garcia. Before I let you go and before we wrap up this interview, I have one more question. Um, being that you are a big fan of the mystery genre, I'm extra curious to know the answer to this question. What are you reading right now? Oh my God. So I am reading, not mystery, I'm reading a book called uh, Lessons in Chemistry by Bonnie Garmus. Oh my God, I hope I didn't mess up her name. Um, it is, it's, it's, it's literary fiction, satire uh, that takes place in the 19, it's a, a woman scientist in 1955 through the six. It's really <laughs> too complicated to explain wow. in a few minutes, but it is really <laughs> good. Um, and it's not something I typically read. Um, but it's really gotten such great reviews and I sort of needed to get out of the mystery genre and read and like cleanse my palate and read something totally different. And so I'm really enjoying, I'm really enjoying that book. I'm about 35% of the way in. So that's the book that I'm reading right now. I'd say the sure. best book I've read so far this year uh, is there were two. Uh, one is called Lies and Bone with, mm -hmm. by Natalie Simmons. And the other one is Latecomer by Jean Hamp Corlotz. Those two books were just absolutely fabulous. So I do read a lot. I probably read um, a book a week. Oh, my gosh. Wow. Okay. That is a lot. <laughs> well, that is very cool. And I'm very curious about some of those books, especially, you know, the ones that you said that kind of do fit into the mystery genre still. I might look into yeah, myself. Yeah, on my Instagram page, I always do an am reading, hashtag am reading, hashtag currently reading. So yeah. I'm not a bookstagram. I'm not a book reviewer. But I do like to tell, you know, the, my fans. Sure. <laughs> move on me. Um, what I'm currently reading. And I, and I try to do some fun photographs to kind of match the cover. Like what inspires me in terms of, you know, sort of just making a nice photograph with the cover of the book. So I always do it so you can see all the books that I'm reading throughout the year. I would say it's very, very rare that I hit a clunker. I mean, the books that are coming out are just, just fabulous books. So it's, it's hard to it's hard to go wrong. Oh, that is so fun. And I will definitely have to look into all of the books that you're currently reading when I check out your Instagram to see your Nantucket pictures because those sound so fun. Uh, before I let you go and do our little sign off here, where can we find you? 
So on Instagram, I'm Marcy McCreary author. On Facebook, I'm Marcy McCreary writes. And I have no idea why I have two different handles, but I do. <laughs> um, I'm on Twitter as MC Marcy, Nick Marcy. Um, again, I don't know why I chose that, but I did a I long time great. ago. Like I was on Twitter when Twitter first came out. So I think I was trying to sort of hide my identity. And, sure. um, and, and, and so like it never really evolved into sort of a, a, a writer's page. Um, you, my website is marcymccreary.com. Um, I'm also on Pinterest, sort of, um, I'm on TikTok, sort of, um, <laughs> but my favorite platform is, is Instagram. I'm there most regularly. I really do like posting onto that, that social, uh, channel. Marcy, thank you so much again for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. And to the listener at home, you can find The Disappearance of Trudy Solomon on our website, camcatbooks.com. It's available in ebook, audiobook, and print formats. And stay tuned because pretty soon you'll be able to find The Murder of Madison Garcia there as well. You can listen to CamCat Unwrapped on all major podcasting platforms, or you can watch us on our YouTube channel, CamCat Unwrapped. And make sure you follow us on social media at CamCatBooks. Thank you so much for tuning in and unwrapping another one of our books to live in with me. My name's Jess, and I'll see you guys next time on CamCat Unwrapped.